postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny Kane.
Welcome to the Earthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today I'll be talking with Rebecca Decker about evidence-based care, how it relates to Florence Nightingale, why it matters, and how to bring its three components into your maternity care. We also talk about the evidence for using castor oil as an induction method, and much, much more. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. Thank you, as always, for all the love you give the show and for sharing about it with your friends, on your social media accounts, with your care providers and your doulas, and just with, you know, with anybody that has anything to do with the birth and pregnancy and postpartum. I really, really appreciate it. If you happen to share on Instagram, make sure you hashtag, you use the hashtag birthful so I can see it and give you some love. All right, so my guest today is Rebecca Decker from Evidence-Based Birth, which is hands down my favorite resource for evidence-based information relating to birth, of course. What else would it be? <laughs> Rebecca just came out with a book called Babies Are Not Pizzas, They Are Born, Not Delivered, and I am so honored to have her here on the show today. We're going to be talking about what evidence-based care means, about her book, what ideal maternity care looks like, the pressures faced by clinicians, and also we go into a deeper dive into what newer evidence says about using castor oil as an induction method, since the evidence-based evidence-based birth team is updating that signature article soon, which is part of their natural induction series. And heads up, really, we sort of went all over the place with this episode, and so there's not one specific theme, there's more like two, maybe three, but we did this in a good way. So I really hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Rebecca, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here again. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be back. And it seems like last time we talked, it's been years, right? It's been so much has happened for I think both of us, but for <laughs> have been watching evidence-based birth grow and grow and you just put out a new book. I know it's been an exciting year for me. I got to say, I'm really appreciating how on a constant basis you are updating all the evidence-based articles that you have on the website so that that the evidence of it, it stays fresh and relevant. Yeah, I made a decision, gosh, three or four years ago, I suddenly realized that, you know, this website is going to be around for a long time at evidencebasebirth.com and new research keeps coming out and... So it's like, how am I going to handle this? You know, we have up to 20, you know, very long articles on the website now that are big, basically literature reviews for the public about all kinds of different topics. So what I ended up doing is hiring someone to help me with research editing. So I don't work by myself. There's actually nine of us on the evidence-based birth team, but Anna Bertoni is uh, the research editor and she has her master's in public health and she works with me to help keep the articles updated. So you know, as we speak, we're in the process of updating the big baby article right now. And um, last year, we updated a whole slew of them. Um, and so that was our focus for last year. And then we're, our hope is to every three or four years, um, do kind of a fresh update of each article. That's fantastic. And it's great to hear that you've got nine people who compose the team now and that it keeps expanding. Right. So it's nine. And that includes, you know, me and my husband. So we're two of the nine. And then we have um, two employees and let me pause. You can edit this out. I got to do the math <laughs> like four, and five contractors. 
And let me write that that edit. Okay. Um yeah, that's fabulous. And I know one of them I gotta shout out to Victoria Wilson because she's been on the show sharing her birth stories. So I know. I told her, I said, I'm recording a birthful podcast. She's like, Oh, I've already been a guest twice on Adriana's <laughs> podcast. She has, you guys are two for two. <laughs> yeah, and Victoria's local to me. So um she was our first full time employee at Evidence Based Birth and just loving working with her. Um, and in that note, I've got to add that. So you're having the evidence-based birth conference this year. Is this the first time or second time you do it? We did a smaller Be the Change conference in 2017. And then this is our first big conference where we are having, um, you know, about 260, 270 people coming to Lexington. Um, so it's very exciting. It's the biggest event I've ever put on. It's been a little bit stressful because the book came out. And then the conference is happening about five weeks after the book came out. So it's a busy time. <laughs> I'm looking forward to having a little bit of downtime afterwards. I bet. I would love to tell everybody like, go, come to the conference because I am also speaking at the conference. But it's sold out. I know. Yeah. So we opened ticket sales almost a year before the conference and it sold out almost immediately. So any tickets that were available um, were from people who had to cancel and then like, you know, um, sell their ticket to someone else. So it, it's been interesting. I, it, it's been an interesting experience hosting a conference. It's always been a dream of mine to have like an interprofessional event where we have doulas and midwives and nurses and physicians and childbirth educators and others all together at the same time. Mm. I am got to say, I'm really looking forward to it and to be in the, in the room with all these people and get their thoughts, right? And I have like a collaborative conversation about how we're where do we go <laughs> with the with the maternity system because there's so much pointing to how there's a lot of room for improvement yeah and we're very excited that uh, you are coming to give a keynote speech all about prenatal visits and how we can dismantle um kind of the power hierarchy um you can say it better than me but it's really interesting how we have this kind of learned helplessness among families uh, who are facing a hospital system or a doctor's office. And so we're really excited to see how, um, I know you've told us you have strategies you're going to teach everybody. So everybody's super excited to hear your talk. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, then it, it all stems from stuff that I do with my doula clients, um, which is about empowering and not so much empowering, but self-efficacy, like getting the people who are going through labor and doing it to own and be responsible for their, for their experience rather than looking externally, which is kind of how the system is set up. And you get into all these hierarchies and, and, you know, it circles back to our talk today of why it's so important for people to understand how to that they have the right for evidence-based care, but how to even approach that to receive that evidence-based care and and all the nuances that go on with that. Exactly, yeah, it's because it's a complex system that families are walking into. So then to set it up, because I was, we, we mentioned the book and it's called Baby, Babies Are Not Pizzas. <laughs> right, they're born, not delivered. Born, not delivered. Um, so as I, you shared on your podcast, on the Evidence-Based Birth podcast, the first 
episode, the first chapter, sorry, of the book. And as I was listening to it, as a doula, there was, you were sharing an experience that your sister had um, when she was studying medicine. And as a doula, like her words resonated so much because it's so... uh, what we decided, what we talked about before starting the recording was that to have you read that bit of it so that people can sure. hear it. And then I'll I'll share my experience, my, my response, what my body did when I heard that. Okay. Yeah. So my sister is two and a half years younger than me, Shannon, and we grew up together as best friends. And when I was pregnant, she was training, she was a, in medical school at the time. And, uh, she had not had any babies yet. This was my first baby and I was pregnant. And so I'll read that section of the book. Although I was oblivious about what I was headed toward my younger sister by two and a half years, Shannon was really worried for me. Shannon was training to be a doctor in Michigan at the time. And she was witnessing all kinds of concerning situations on the labor and delivery unit. She noticed how many women were receiving totally unnecessary interventions like medications given to speed up labor, even when labor was progressing normally, or episiotomies or cesareans being done because the physician was tired of waiting for the client to push the baby out. One time a resident told Shannon, well, she's four centimeters now, so we are going to go break her water. Why? Shannon asked. Pause. Because that's what we do. Feeling a bit like a two-year-old, Shannon again asked, why? Because it will make it go faster. Why do we need it to go faster? The resident grew more annoyed and brushed Shannon off. A few hours later, after finding all the research articles she could on PubMed, Shannon came back to the resident. So I was looking at this issue of rupturing membranes. It looks like it doesn't really make the first stage of labor go faster, and it can increase the risk of infection. As you can probably guess, my sister was not the best loved student on this rotation, but she did learn a lot about the culture of labor and delivery and the need for change. Years later, she also told me, while training in obstetrics, I began to see that we as doctors can lie to our patients and lie to ourselves if needed. And it's such a powerful paragraph, right? Of like, to me as a doula, the red, the, what stood out that red flag is like, because that's how we do it. No matter what, this is something that doulas are almost like, and I I just say doulas because that's the circle I move in, but I'm sure that's for a lot of professionals as well, of that's just because how we do it. And it's like, wait, that, that, no, <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. how we do it. Give There's got to be a reason why. Um, so let's break that down. Like where? Well, where I was does- just curious, what, what emotions did you feel when you, read that section. Well, and, and I feel it, it, I don't get angry. I don't get, you know, it's not a, a strong emotion, but like I feel my back kind of my body gets straightened up. I kind of straighten up and but sort of within that paying attention. I think if I, if I was a dog, it would be those ears that are like up and that lift for, to listen. Right. Like alert. Yeah, yeah. That alert um, signal because it, it's those words that alert me to wait that's not here's the thing those words point to me of there are guidelines and protocol being placed that isn't necessarily taking into consideration the uniqueness of the client I have in front of me or the research evidence yes yeah and I think one of the interesting things about me and my sister I don't know if I should speak for her but we've always 
questioned authority. So the reason she kept asking why is because she and I are just both very curious and we just want to know why we do things. Like we feel like there has to be a good reason. And it was pretty interesting that all she kept doing was saying, why, why, why? And it's just like this house of cards when you realize that this is all being done just because that's what they do. There's no you know, real reason to do it. And in fact, it could cause harm. Uh, so the part that really affects me when I, every time I read that passage is when she talks about learning how to lie to our patients and lie to ourselves. Um, to me, I always get chills. Mm -hmm. when I reread that section, because I mean, first of all, it's brutally honest. And like, I have to be really thankful to my sister for, you know, being transparent about what happens when you're training to be a doctor and um, the kinds of manipulation that can be done with patients. And um, yeah, so not to spread mistrust of physicians, obviously my own family member is a physician and I trust her, but um I thought it was interesting that she said lying to ourselves mm. in terms of, you know, it's not, not, it might not necessarily be like an intentional lie to the patient, but the physician may convince themselves that something is right. And so they go out to convince the patient as well. Well, and this is something that you bring up often that it, because context is everything. I'm a big believer of que of questioning things be, and also putting them into context and, uh, and analyzing the circumstances under which they're happening. Because we can look at statistics and risk and percentages, and those are great Great information, you know, the tagline for this podcast is inform your intuition. That's great for the general information, but then bring that to your own personal wishes, beliefs, culture, needs, and circumstances, and how do those match? Like, it needs to have both things happen. Um, and then going back to the physicians in terms of context... You mentioned often that it's we have to pay attention to understand that they're under a lot of pressure as well in terms of the system to provide, you know, to comply to a certain standards and guidelines and ways of doing things that are required so that the system works more efficiently, but it can in a way be a detriment to the you know, the uniqueness of each individual patient and also that, you know, the implementation of, of evidence from research to actual practice can take, what is it, something like 19 years? Right, 15 to 20 years, although that's, you know, that info is a little bit outdated. I haven't seen any current <laughs> research about the evidence practice gap, but yeah, on average, that's what... Um, uh, researchers say it takes about 15 to 20 years. Which is an enormous time. Um, so that so that we do have to consider that. And I guess that's, do you think that's why she was saying that physicians lie to their patients and lie to themselves because of also the context and the situation they're in and the different forces that are pulling them in different ways? I'm not sure. That would be a good question for her. I think, I really think my sister should write a book someday. She's got a lot more that um, we did not put in the book. And I think really, though, if you think about some of the examples she gave, you know, about cesareans being called and episiotomies being done because the physician was tired or because they needed the room, she began seeing those things, you know, as a medical student even. 
which mm. were lies basically to the patient, right? Telling them that they needed this or they needed that when the truth was it was something else unrelated to the health of the mother and baby. So let's take a break and when we come back, let's talk about some how you know the listeners near expectant parents that are listening out there can then get tools to figure out is this something that is evidence-based or is it something that you know is it being done because it's it it's not a lie right it's a need or is it because something else is going on like the physician is tired or or who knows what else right but not necessarily evidence-based we'll be right back and we are back talking with Rebecca Decker about lots of things <laughs> related to evidence-based birth because we've kind of jumped around um, this complex topic that is so intricate. So in terms of the evidence-based care part of it, where does that concept come from and why is it important? You know, it actually goes back in far as far back in time as Florence Nightingale. Uh, when she was, you know, considered by many to be the founder of modern nursing in the 1800s, when she was caring for soldiers in the Crimean War, she collected data and used that data to figure out why soldiers were dying at higher rates. And then she proposed reforms to fix that. Most of it had to do with sanitation. Um, so, that was kind of the beginning roots. And then it wasn't until the 1990s when some physicians in Canada started using the term evidence-based medicine. They introduced that term and that concept, and they developed a working group with some American doctors. And then um, during the rest of the 1990s, they published kind of like a handbook on how to use evidence-based uh, research in medicine. And it just kind of spread from there. So it's really not that old of a concept. It's only been around being called evidence-based medicine for about 25 years now, but it is a complete break from the history of medicine. In the past, medicine and midwifery were entirely based on the doctor's clinical experience and maybe what they were taught. And we didn't get rid of that with evidence-based care. What we did is also bring in the concept of looking at the research and applying those results when when they're when they should be applied to patients who, um, you know, where that data actually applies to them. Because sometimes research data doesn't apply to you in your unique situation. And then the founders of evidence-based medicine said it's not just the research and it's not just the provider, but it's also the client's values, goals, and preferences. It's kind of like a three-legged stool. Um, you have to have all three components in order to have evidence-based care. And then that ties in nicely into the the structure of uh, informed consent and refusal, right? Because one part of that evidence-based medicine is your client preferences. Right, and their autonomy. And um, you should actually be asking about and honoring what the client wants. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about shared decision-making in terms of the provider and the client making decisions together. But at the end of the day, if there's a disagreement, um, the client's wishes should be the ones respected. So that's, um, yeah, the client's autonomy. It's like an ethical component, but it's also a part of evidence-based care. 
Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that needs to be underlined and repeated because the way we tend to interact with medicine all our life, right? This is not specifically limited to the birth and maternity. This is an OBGYN. This is a the broad system um, approach. We tend to, you know, defer to the, the doctors. So a lot of people... Uh, I'm not going to generalize a lot of people. I have had clients that when we're talking about this, they said, and I can do that. I can tell them that I don't want something. It's like, yes, yes, you can. In fact, it, it should be a joint. You guys have the, you own the decisions. It should be your decision of what you want to have happen for yourself and your baby. Yeah. And as you can see, when you read the book, babies are not pizzas. That's just not the way healthcare is routinely delivered. You know, time after time, either myself or my friends or family have been forced through this system and had pressure, coercion, threats um, hung over their heads while they're in labor or during pregnancy. And there's a big reason why it is that way. And that's because that's the way the system is set up to give some people the top power and to not respect the power of the people who are considered subordinate to them. So a lot of my book is about kind of untangling. Why is it that in some situations the providers might override the patient's autonomy? And why is that? Why, why would you do that as a provider? And so we kind of break that down and dissect it. Mm, that's so interesting. Um, or is there a, like one specific reason of why they do that? Or is it multi-pronged? I think it's multi-pronged. It, it took me many years to figure it out. So part of the book, it's the book is a memoir. So it's basically following me through my story. And as you go through the story, I, I kind of figure out little pieces of it. Um, because and, and what really happened is not only did I have a traumatic birth experience, but then after I started evidence-based birth, one of the first people who read my blog reached out to me and asked me for help with her birth plan. And then she went to the same hospital where I had my baby and also um, had a traumatic. She wasn't necessarily traumatized, but the resident caring for her was uh, because they, the hospital freaked out about her birth plan. And it's just like story after story after story of trying to push back against the system and each time just getting slammed, you know, with retaliation or other problems. And over many years, I found that some of the aspects include the power system, which I've already talked about, the way we have an oppressive power structure set up in hospitals, um, but also social psychology, like how people act in social situations is the field of social psychology. And it's really interesting to see, like, you know, why would a nurse make a decision to do this? Or why would a doctor decide to, to act or speak in this way? Um, you break it down, you know, it's partly maybe their personalities. Um, it may be because of their values. Maybe they value being, um, maybe they value authority figures more than they value the patient's autonomy. So also we have the whole aspect of trauma with secondary trauma. So our hospital staff are often the walking wounded and they're hurt people. And so they're reacting in certain labor and delivery situations. They might reacting to a trigger from a past traumatic birth. And 
so they act out in a fear-based way, limiting the client's choices. Yeah, no, it is indeed so complex. And then you also have um, just medical bias in general. Uh, right. So how, how doctors are educated, you know, um, how they're many in many medical schools um, and residency programs, they may never even meet a midwife or train underneath one. So they don't even know what, you know, midwives are and they're suspicious of them. So when they go out to graduate, they're suspicious of all the midwives in the state. So there's just like, you know, it's multi-pronged. And that's kind of what the book is about is my journey trying to figure out the system and ultimately coming up against the system in a really real way where I had to make a huge choice. Like, do I stay and be a part of the system or do I give up everything and leave? So that's kind of what the book's about. Mm, that sounds fascinating. I've read a little bit of it. I want to read all of it to get your full story. Um, and also to understand a little bit what led you to that conclusion and the creation of evidence-based birth. Um, but with the complexities that we were just talking about around why doctors and, and, and care providers in general do what they do, it also made me remember, you know, you said evidence-based medicine, the concept of it was just created in the 90s, um, which is not that long ago in terms of training. And so there's, you've got like one set of providers that needed to change their paradigm completely or be instructed into it that don't even know. But back to what your sister was saying of this is how or, or what heard from the resident of this is how we do things. Um, it reminded me of a talk I had with Rachel Reed uh, uh, on shoulder dystocia, and I'll link it on the show notes as well. And she her comment was, there are so many practices in obstetrics that were placed what that put into place before we had the evidence. And now that we are paying attention to evidence, we kind of have to like disprove these things that were put into place without evidence in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Pregnant uh, women, pregnant people have been guinea pigs for a long time um, with things being done to them with no real research to see whether it's safe or not. I do want to say one of the great tragedies of the way the system is set up is that the obstetricians and the midwives and the nurses who really want to provide true evidence-based care that respects client autonomy, and there are many of them, they do exist, but they often face really precarious um, situations in terms of, you know, maybe even threats to end their career, which you can imagine how much work it takes to get into medical school, to finish medical school and residency and become a doctor, and then to have your career threatened because you want to support a patient's choice on their birth plan. You know, that is, is a great tragedy to me because um, we're losing some of the best providers uh, due to burnout and also because they have to decide if they're going to continue supporting the client's wishes or if they're going to keep their job or if they're going to retire and I've known too many great OBs and doctors and midwives uh, leave the obstetrics field entirely. Um, and they're the, exactly the ones as a doula that you would want caring for your client, but they're literally forced out. Yeah. And that speaks back to that pressure that I was talking about, that they're under a pressure that you can't imagine in terms of uh, that's, that's a lot of pulling forces of, do I support my 
my patient in the way that I believe they should be supported and what are the implications of that to me personally? What what reprimands am I going to have to face because I'm doing that? Right, exactly. It's a hard situation. It is. Um, so let's bring this concept of evidence-based care. Like what, what would ideally that putting those the, that three-pronged stool, those three elements into practice, what would that look like as an, an ideal care provider? Like, so yeah, what are the, the things that, that they would do? Or you, you and your, you know, you, you consider like, this is Rebecca's ideal of, of care. Right. So I think that my ideal and what I hold people to this standard in terms of if I find a provider is that they stay up to date on the latest evidence. They know um, they, their experience and they, they can look at the evidence and look at me and say, oh, that evidence applies to you. And, and they also have good clinical skills where they can you know, examine me and figure out what's going on. Um, but then also, you know, presenting all the information about these are your choices, including the choice to do nothing. And here's all the risks and benefits of each choice. And then just sitting back and letting the client, me, decide is ideal. That's true evidence-based care. Now, in some cases, some people are less likely to want to make that decision. They don't want that autonomy, some clients, in which case, um, you know, the provider might have to do a little bit more guiding, but a lot of providers still won't even do that. Like the, the ones that I really admire, they still really want to get to the root of what does the client want because it's their body and it's their choice. And this just, this isn't just with birth, but any healthcare decision. Like, so for example, in the babies are not pizzas book, I get to a point where, um, I was 42 weeks and four days pregnant with my last baby, which was completely unexpected because I'd never gone that past due with my other pregnancies. Um, but it was also my unique clinical situation was that the dates were uncertain. So I hadn't, I hadn't had a period cause I was breastfeeding. So we didn't actually know when I conceived, I didn't have a last period menstrual period date. And the early ultrasound had given us an estimated date and based on that ultrasound, I was two weeks and four days past my due date. Um, and all leading up to that point, you know, anxiety was growing, fear was growing because every day by day by day goes by and I don't go into labor. Um, thankfully, my midwife knew, she's very experienced, that my dates weren't certain. And based on other testing, I was healthy, my baby was healthy. So I had a choice. Um, I had I had several choices. I could go to the hospital and be induced. I could wait for labor to start on its own, or I could use some natural induction methods. So that might be an example for someone. So for a lot of people, and I know you and I had mentioned this by email, a lot of people are looking for a way to get that baby out at the end of pregnancy. And um, there are multiple, multiple options, but often it's presented to you as you need to have an induction or you must have an induction and there's no other op alternatives offered. So like, for example, one alternative might be castor oil. Another might be breast stimulation. Um, and there's also like, you know, multiple ways you could have labor medically induced with medications or mechanically, but often people aren't given choices. They're just given one path 
And that's not a choice and that's not evidence-based care because you didn't get all the information. Well, and I think that's where it really needs to come around to the patient taking responsibility and owning their birth. And that requires a shift in paradigm, right, of saying, I have work to do here to have this experience that I want to have, you know, because you can have the provider that, that gives you that is up to date to the evidence. It looks at, it has good clinical skills. It looks at what you, you know, your unique situation, how the evidence relates to you, gives you all the options and the option to do nothing. But then how are you choosing, right? You need to also hold up your, I'm going to add another leg to the stool. No, um, you need to hold, <laughs> hold up your part of the bargain and say, okay, I'm going to own this. This is a, uh, this is a really first enormous step into parenting of really, you know, shifting into that, into that new identity of you're taking ownership of this because this relates to you then being a parent and taking ownership of, you know, you're, or not taking ownership of, of leading your child. So instead of just being led, you got to switch it up. Yeah. Um, and you got to have options. Yes. And so let's take another break. When we come back, let's, um, you mentioned before by email that you had new, you had reviewed the evidence on castor oil for induction. So let's walk through that in, in light of, of all that we've talked today. We'll be right back. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You've taken gorgeous photos of your baby or your kids, and then when you want to share them, it is a pain either trying to find the photos or figuring out the group text that they should go to, and then also remembering that, say, Aunt Helen only does email, so you need to send her image separately. Or like in my case, where my husband is a photographer who takes magnificent photos that I rarely actually get to see because they live on his phone or end up scattered in text messages that I can't easily find. Enter the Family Album app, which was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with your loved ones. Basically, it's a personal space for your family's memories without third-party ads or unwanted eyes and with a bunch of fabulous features. It automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and easily see how your child has grown. And you can also order eight photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. The Family Album app also has unlimited storage. Plus, it's totally free. Yup, no more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by third-party ads. So, to all the parents out there still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, level up your family photo game for free and securely with the Family Album photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, all in one word, and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. Diaper rash. It can be a truly uncomfortable experience for a baby. And so I find that one of the biggest conundrums when diapering is figuring out what diaper cream to use. So many options are thick and goopy, making them hard to apply and hard to wipe off. But I can personally say that this is not the case for Dr. Mom Butt Balm. 
Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant that is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, designed as a breathable formula to help maintain an optimal skin barrier while allowing the healing to occur. This butt balm was developed by a mom who is also a doctor, hence the name Dr. Mom Butt Balm, when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash and she wasn't about to settle. So she created Dr. Mom Butt Balm to go on smooth and be easy to remove while also being gentle on your baby's delicate skin. With Dr. Mom Butt Balm, you can say goodbye to excessive wiping to clean your little one's already chafed skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is so soft and goes on so smooth that you'll only need a small amount instead of having to layer on a thick goop. Plus, it has a lovely minty scent. Learn more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com. That's drmombuttbalm.com. Or look for it at Amazon.com. And we are back talking with Rebecca Decker about many things, evidence-based care, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based birth, her new book, Babies Are Not Pizzas. They are (laughs) born, (laughs) Born, not not delivered. delivered. Thank you. Sorry. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, castor oil, that's something that often comes up. It's, It's... of people wanting to so to me being going past your due dates and having this conversation of induction becomes a pivotal moment where physiology can be derailed because you can get into that anxious and worried mind of having to do something and forcing a situation and not necessarily let let you know birth takes its course in terms of like you won't be pregnant forever and It can be very stressful if you are have an appointment today, say you're 40 weeks and they say everything looks good. Let's say let's schedule you for a non-stress test next week and and an ultrasound just to make sure everything looks good. And also then maybe let's start talking about induction. That just did a complete 180 in your mind of worry and anxiety and what do I need to do and how do I get this to happen if I'm looking at an induction, you know, next week or the following. Um, so one of the things you have a series that, and uh, by you, I mean the collective group of evidence-based birth has a series on different natural induction methods and what the evidence is on it. And I looked through really quickly, and there's about, you did the evidence for acupuncture, for red raspberry leaf tea, blue black, uh, blue and black cohosh, uh, eating dates, breast stimulation, and castor oil. And you had mentioned that you have, you're about to update the castor oil one. Do you have, will you share that information with us? Sure. So one of the options that I was presented with was castor oil, and I actually went and bought some when I was 42 weeks. Um I still have the bottle because I couldn't bring myself to drink it. I was just, I just took one sniff and look at it. I'm like, nope, not doing that. But I didn't have full information because um, now that I've looked at all the research, there's, I have a lot more information about castor oils. This is something obviously 
you want to talk with your provider about, hopefully of a provider who is well-versed in the research evidence and stays up to date on the research on castor oil. But it's, it's obtained from the seeds of the castor bean plant, which is native to Northeast Africa and the Middle East. And castor oil is a potent laxative. It's actually often used to induce diarrhea in um, lab rats in order to like study medications. So um, it can cause diarrhea. Um, and it's thought that the, the intestinal effects also, it also has some uterine, it causes uterine contractions as well, both intestinal contractions and uterine contractions. And it's actually been reported that it's been used as long ago as ancient Egypt. So they've been using, you know, castor oil has been around for, for many thousands of years. So um, there's been a Cochrane review published by Kelly et al. in 2013. Uh, they found three randomized trials with a total of 223 women who received a single 60 milliliter dose of castor oil. And basically they concluded there was no difference um, in cesarean rates or APGAR scores or meconium stained fluid. Um, all of the women who took the castor oil felt nauseous and, um, however, in, they didn't see together that it, so basically each study individually did find that castor oil could induce labor, um, but no difference in the cesarean rate. Um, and then there's been some other studies that are looking at it, um, just observational research. Oh, but there was also another randomized controlled trial just published in 2018. Uh, the last name of the first author was Gilad, G-I-L-A-D. And it was a randomized controlled trial of 81 women who were post-dates. And they, did, um, they took 60 milliliters of castor oil or the placebo was like 60 milliliters of sunflower oils. So they were both oils. And they found that... Um, Women who had given birth before were much more likely to be induced with the castor oil, whereas women who were having their first baby were not likely to go into active labor quickly. So it seemed to be effective on people who are post-dates and had had multiple babies. Okay. And that is different from the initial research. When I look through as a review for uh, what you have on the website right now, um, and it talked about those, those, uh, the Cochrane review of the, I think it was three different um, studies, one in uh, Iran, one in New York, one in Israel. Mm -hmm. And it, it was remarkable to me that for the one in Iran and in, in New York, the numbers were almost identical that about 58 percent of the people who took the castor oil went to labor within 24 hours versus four percent of the the you know the control the the people that didn't take the castor oil mm -hmm. um and, and then the i'm sorry yeah no and, and then that i mean it's 54 percent, but it's still 46 percent that didn't have any difference Right. So it didn't happen for everybody. There was, I mean, it was better than not taking it in that case, but, but it's not a hundred percent guaranteed. Not a hundred percent effective. But one of the interesting things about the research is that they only took one dose. So after I came out with that first article, 
I had received a really interesting email from a nurse midwife who's retired, um, who practiced for 38 years in the home birth setting. She told me she'd attended more than 1,500 births, and whenever a client needed an induction, castor oil was the first option. So it was interesting. She sent to me her protocol, and what she did, what she witnessed in real life, was backed up by that randomized controlled trial. And that if you were if you were beyond your due date, and if you'd had a prior vaginal birth, um, that it was likely to work on you. Um, it was less likely to work if you were a first time mom, or if um, you hadn't reached your due date yet. Um, but she had other factors she looked at, but she actually required um, two doses. Let me see how many hours apart. So she she required it to be repeated in four hours. Um, otherwise, she felt that the labor would fizzle out. So it was interesting then that the, the studies that we have are on a one-dose regimen. So it would be interesting to see research with a two-dose. Also, the researchers in the different studies mixed it with different things to make it palatable, which I thought was interesting because I was like, there's no way I can drink this castor oil. And because it's an oil it doesn't dissolve in liquid. So you can't just like put it in Sprite or in some really sugary drink because it'll just kind of like float on the top and be real nasty. So um, one midwife told me that they make a milkshake with orange juice and vanilla ice cream in a blender. Um, and then you drink it through a big straw. And then somebody else had some kind of cocktail where they mixed it with champagne actually <laughs> and um, some other things to help it dissolve. Um, so. And yeah, I was, so I was post-dates as well. Labor kicked in at 41 weeks exactly, but um, my midwife was also suggesting I take, I take castor oil and to mix it, her, her concoction was mixing it with orange juice. The, I think with the vanilla would have sounded much better, but the same thing, I took a smell of it and it was like, oh no, no, this sounds. No, I couldn't do it. I was like, there's no way I'll, I'll get this down. So I, I didn't even try. Well, but I mean, I, yeah, that goes back to to client preference, right? Because yeah. it's it, it uh, the from I don't know if this has updated in the in that um, in the random control trial from 2018, but um, on the evidence that I read, a hundred percent of people who took it were nauseous, and it's also a really powerful laxative. So, you know, those things are things to weigh in your consideration of whether to take it or not. Yeah, there's definitely side effects. So, yeah, but I think part of the nausea might come from how disgusting it is. So if you mm -hmm. can use some kind of cocktail, which that goes back to clinical experience, right? That's the experience part of the, the three-legged stool. If your clinician knows how to do this, they probably have a way of making it less disgusting so that you're less likely to vomit. Yeah, absolutely. And at all of this, I, I as we talk, I keep um, I keep being reminded of the brain acronym um, for helping you to make informed decisions, where it, it prompts questions of what to ask of anything that is presented, and the B being the what are the benefits, R what are the risks, A are there any alternatives. The I is, do I need more information? And then the N, I've seen it written in different ways, but like, what do we do next? Or what if we do nothing? Um, which is always an alternative, right? You can say, no, thank right. you. Yeah. Right. I think part of my problem and what happened to me in the book 
is that I didn't exactly have all the options because one of my options should have been to go to the hospital and just be induced medically. Um, but I didn't feel safe at that hospital at that point. And you learn more from reading the book about why. Um, and so that really spurred to me on this kind of lifelong quest of like, well, how can we make it so that everybody feels safe and comfortable and confident going to a hospital? Because I surely, I can't be the only person who's afraid to go to the hospital for an induction. There's got to be more people out there. Absolutely. Well, and I'll link on the show notes. Also, I have an an episode with Tony Golem, who um, is from the Harvard Medical School, and she does um, policy review. And she walked me through what the induction process is once you decide to have an induction, because it has many variations, right? But I think that's something that people aren't told. And there's this idea of an induct. If I'm doing an induction, it's going to work. The, the people aren't really told the whole information about the process of the induction and how it can fail. And depending on what interventions were added along the way, you may not have the option of saying, okay, I'm going home then. I'm, I'm stopping this and then going home because it might be, you might be walked into a corner where then the only option at that point is to do a cesarean. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm pretty sure like an induction would have been successful on me, a medical one, because I, you know, was so far along and I'd already had two babies vaginally. Uh, For me, it was more of a personal thing in that um, being part of the power hierarchy and knowing that they didn't like my work at evidence-based birth and then having to walk into that hospital and be a patient there. Mm. Uh, was just it introduced a different dynamic where I felt really trapped like I absolutely had to have a home birth you know the only way I could go to the hospital is if I had a life-threatening emergency because I I was worried about the kind of care I would receive personally because of who I was so that was my problem Mm, so that was off the table for other reasons like it was it was an option but not a viable one for you yeah and it made me upset later on that I didn't feel comfortable choosing that option Because to be honest, going 42 weeks and four days was like the hardest thing I've ever done. And I wouldn't want to do it again personally. That's my own personal values, goals, and preferences. I would have personally just have liked to like just get the induction, have this baby. (laughs) And so, but I didn't feel safe there for personal reasons. So I did, I feel upset still about that, you know, that I didn't really have that choice. Because I think, you know, it's interesting how sometimes the intervention is the better choice for some people. Mm-hmm. It's just in my case, I couldn't, I felt like I was trapped. Like I couldn't choose that. And that I'm so sorry about that. And that's really unfortunate. And and it also reminded me about the, the clip from um, John Oliver on medical bias that we were taught, that I mentioned earlier on, I'll link it in the show notes, but of how the information that we have in medicine tends to be um these guidelines tend to be done in medicine in general of on the standard is the male body right and we apply male uh, male results to female anatomy and just extrapolate and sometimes even to children um so there's a there's a bias not only generally in, in terms of the own clinician and what their preferences are and, and what they 
you know, think of consider of an induction or think of or their own personal experience of uh, something horrible happened to them with a client. So then policy changes for them in terms of I'm not doing that ever again. But also there's a bias in terms of gender and race. Um, And we're seeing all these the the horrible maternal outcomes, how it's way more dire if you happen to be a person of color, um, specifically a black person, because there's that bias that will get you less worse care and and at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, it also brought up the point, which I talk more about in the book with racism, is that if I, as like a white, you know, upper middle class uh, woman, cisgender woman, if I'm afraid to go into the hospital, like how much worse is it for other people? So it definitely we have change that we need to make. And I think in some ways we're on um, the right track with changes that are being made in hospitals around the world. But in other ways, we still have a lot of work to left to do. We'll keep at it for sure. Thank you so very much for being on the show today. If people want to read your book, if they want to connect with you, if they want to see more about evidence-based birth, how can they do that? Yeah, the book is available on Amazon as a paperback, hardcover, and Kindle. And we also have an Audible version. should be out by the time this podcast is aired. And you can also find us at evidencebasedbirth.com slash book, and you can learn more about the book there. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Adriana. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabersky. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Here's what Rebecca had for breakfast. I eat keto, so I had eggs and bacon. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week and I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2019 by Adriana Lozada.